I love Delray Church. There's a lot of things that I love about the church. And one of the things specifically as I'm getting into the, the sermon this morning I love about our church is the premium that we place on the preaching of God's Word. Uh, we, we place an emphasis on preaching God's Word and, and a quality in the preaching of God's Word. In uh, kind of popular North American Christianity and in the West, a lot of preaching is quite superficial and shallow. It's more of a kind of self-help genre with some Bible verses sprinkled on it. Uh, the preacher will maybe have a Bible, but the Bible operates more as a prop in the preacher's hand because the preacher isn't actually using it. Uh, it's more motivational talk. They're never really taking you deep into God's Word and the truths of God's Word. And one of the things that I love about our church is uh, we, we don't play that game. We're not playing that game. We're, we're pushing back. We're countercultural. So if you're new here this morning, st you know, strap on a seatbelt, get your thinking caps if you check them at the door. They say, uh, you know, there's this stereotype that when you come to church, you got to check your brains at the door. That's not the case here. You got to put your thinking caps on. So strap on a seatbelt. We're going to go crazy. Uh, admittedly, this, this, this week, as I was preparing for today, I was uh, just particularly, uh, you know, I constantly go, man, I'm so thankful for our church. I'm thankful that on Christmas Eve, I get to do what I'm about to do and just drop a big truth bomb on the congregation and take us really deep into what we believe. And so that said, would you please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke? For the month of December, I have been preaching a sermon series that uh, is entitled Christmas Christology. And the goal of this series is to take us deep into the theology of Christmas in order to deepen our worship of God and appreciation for the coming of the Son of God in the flesh, born in Bethlehem over 2,000 years, which we celebrate at Christmas. The title of today's message is The Pregnant Virgin, and in this message we will be digging into and defending the doctrine of the virgin conception of Christ. And as I said a moment ago, I'm so thankful for our church because I, I really, I could count on my hand uh, the number of churches that kind of would do something like what I'm going to dare to do this morning in terms of going really deep in theology to, to help us to understand things that we need to understand. And these are things that you can understand, but unfortunately the ivory towers kind of keep them trapped and don't bring them. When I was in grad school and seminary, uh, learning theology and history and science and how, how it all integrates together into our faith. One of the things that I constantly, I, I, I just would leave classes with this feeling of like, why, why do I have to go to grad school to learn this stuff? Why aren't they teaching this in the church? And I'd ask my professors, you know, like, hey, would you come to the church and teach in the church? And they go, oh, this is, just, this is too much for church people. You know, they're, they're not ready for this. And I think, how condescending is that? You just think, oh, church people can't get this? Only, only the people in grad school can get this? Well, I beg to differ. So uh, this is going to be like a sermon slash uh, seminary discourse this morning as we get into things. And we unpack some Christmas Christology with regard to the pregnant version. By way of introduction, I, do, I need to review um, what we have covered so far in this series in case there are people here who weren't uh, here in, in previous uh, you know, installments of the series because I'm, I'm making a case and I'm building on something. So first of all, Christology. Ology is the study of. Uh, Christos is the Greek word for Christ, so it's the study of the Christ. Uh, uh, right, bio, life, biology, the study of life and, and geology, right, the study of the earth. Christology is the study of Christ. Christu Logos uh, is a word or discourse about Christ. And when I began this series on the first Sunday of December, I disclosed that I'm operating with two basic presuppositions. Uh, the, the, the first of these basic presuppositions is that the Bible is the original source material for proper research and scientific investigation. Um, this is something that can be uh, defended. This is something that stands up to historical scrutiny and stands up to science and the sands of time. But for purposes of this series and for sake of time, because I'm already doing, you know, maybe too much, but I'm, I'm pushing the envelope here. Uh, you, you know, I'm just assuming uh, this as a, as a principle for us. I ask you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke because I want you to see this about the Bible itself, how it talks about itself how the authors of the texts of Scripture uh, you know, you know, write about what it is that they are doing in these texts. So Luke chapter 1, verse 1, "...the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham." Oops, I'm in Matthew. I need to get over to Luke. Hang on, hang on. 
That's why you've got to be on your toes. Here we go. Inasmuch as, chapter 1, verse 1, many have undertaken to compile an account of these things, accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in a consecutive order. Right? He goes on to say in verse 4, so that you may know the exact truth of the things of which you have been taught. Here from the text you see, uh, and this is a first century text, it's written by the historical figure Luke, who is a trained, uh, he's a a trained medical physician, so he has a science background, and he uses his scientific mind to put to scrutiny uh, the claims of Christmas. And you see the way he's writing, it's not like once upon a time many moons ago, right? This isn't mythological, this is historical. He's a forensic investigator writing to give the evidences for the things with regard to the Christ and the story of redemption inside of the scripture. And so, so with that, that that's how, how we're using the word. We're using it as, as an original source for proper research and scientific investigation. My second conviction slash presupposition is that the historical doctrine of the Trinity is the biblical paradigm for Christological inquiry. One might say that in Christmas we celebrate God becoming a man. Uh, But in in saying it so broadly that way, you need to be careful. Celebrating God becoming a man, well, actually we're celebrating something a little more specific. We believe that God the Son became a man, and that requires the doctrine of the triunity of God. Now, what does this doctrine entail? An orthodox definition that you have on your outline here is that there is one God who eternally exists in three co-equal and different persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of whom are fully God and all of whom are equal. There is one God, right? One being, one what? God. And this one what eternally exists in three who's, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Um, This leads to the next point on your outline that you have C there, that Christmas requires the Trinity. When we study the Christmas story, we see divine agency through and through. We see the persons of the Godhead on the move. On your outline, you see the Father has this initiation of the Christmas plan. And the Son has this condescension and execution in relation to that plan. Uh, Finally, we see the Holy Spirit who actualizes the plan of the virgin conception through which the Son of God comes. Uh, we, we see the Father, we see the Son, we see the Spirit on the move in the Christmas account. Uh, we, we see the one divine will of the triune God to give us this holy day, or rather this holy child, Jesus, born in Bethlehem. Throughout the Bible, we, we see this holy triune God uh, working uh, t- together in this manner uh, from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. When you open your Bible, the first book, the book of Genesis, in the beginning God, you see God creating. In the opening verses, you see the Spirit hovering over creation. You see the Father, you see the Spirit, we see the Father creating by the power of His Word. We read later in Scripture in the book of John that that Word is none other than the Son. You you get into the Bible and you're immediately met with Father, Son, and Spirit. In the beginning creation account, you see God speaking in in the divine plural, let us create. Let us make man in our image. Who's he talking to? Himself, who who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so he creates the world. He pours his love upon the world. Uh, It's a sad story of what happens next, a story of unrequited love, because uh, the world rebels against him. The first humans that he creates, they, they fall into a rebellion against him. As a result, their progeny are born in sin. They're born in this rebellion. And humanity is at odds with its creator. The creator is the giver of life. And so the penalty for rebelling against the creator of life is the taking back of life. And, and this is why, to this day, 10 out of 10 people die. Why do 10 out of 10 people die? Because 10 out of 10 people sin. The wages of sin is death. But God, right? But God, rich in mercy, abundant in grace, has a plan. The Father has this plan of Christmas. And it involves the son condescending to enter into the rebel army and become a man and die at the hands of the rebel army in order that he can rescue prisoners of this war and welcome them into his home and make them sons through the son. 
This is what we call the gospel, the good news. And this is a message that you can have today. You can turn from your sin. You can cry out to God now and say, I know that I've sinned. I've felt guilt. I've felt shame. I've done things that I shouldn't have done, and I will continue doing them. I, I need atonement. I need someone who can set me free from this. This is what Christmas entails. And in order for this to be the case, behind this, we have this rich theology of this triune God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Son, the Son of God becoming a baby in Bethlehem, a part of His plan of redemption to redeem us. Now then, moving down your outline, we move from the Christmas, C, requires the Trinity, to D. Let's look at some essential Christmas Christology. We've had three installments in this sermon series. This morning is the fourth. In the first installment, we looked at how Christ is fully and completely God. Um, This is a fundamental doctrine. We moved through the scriptures. We saw repeated, repeated claims that he's fully and completely God. Then in the second installment of this, we looked at Christ being fully and completely human. Uh, This is also a very important thing for us in Christmas, that he's fully God and he's fully man. We need him to be fully God because only God can forgive sin. We need him to be fully man because we need a sacrifice in our place. So if he's not a man, then he can't die in our place. And if he's not God, then he can't forgive us of our sin. And then last week, we looked at how these two work together. The divine and human natures of Jesus being distinct and completely united in one person, what we call the hypostatic union. The son did not take on a human person. The son didn't come and possess a a human person. He came and took on a human nature. Thus, while Jesus was fully God and fully man, he was not two persons. He's one person, the eternal son. This is what we call the hypostatic union. Two natures, unconfused, unmixed. So the baby in the manger is one person who is both God and man. He is, as we discussed last week, the anthropos. That is the historical name that affirms that Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is God because he is, as we discussed last week, homoousia, meaning he is of the same essence or nature with the Father and the Spirit. And because of Christmas, he, Jesus, is also of the same nature as to us in that he became a member of our species. He became a part of this rebel army of humanity. The homoousia became homo sapien, one person with two natures, divine and human. Musing on this wondrous and rich doctrine, theologian Stephen Sharnock moves into praise as we all ought to, and he writes, What a wonder it is that the two natures infinitely distant should be more intimately united than anything in the world, and yet without any confusion, that the same person should have both glory and a grief infinite joy in the deity, and an inexpressible sorrow in humanity, that a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle, the thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man, as such expressions of mighty power as well as condescending love, that they astonish men upon earth and angels in heaven, end quote. These essential realities ought to move us in this kind of wonder. It, it ought to call us into a deep worship, It ought to beckon us into a witness as we herald the good news that I just proclaimed to you a moment ago that though we have sinned against our Creator, the Creator has a plan of Christmas that entails the Son dying in our place. And in order to die in our place, He has to join our race. He has to become one of us. And in Christmas, that's what we are celebrating. These essential realities, this truth as you have in front of you, Luke chapter 1, verse 4, so that you may know the exact truth of the things that have been taught, the aim of the Scripture is to pass this on and to to teach this to us that we would understand these things. As you have the Gospel of Luke in front of us, I want to return to the text and point out some things in just a moment, but as we're musing on the doctrine of the virgin conception, this is something that is vitally important. This is something that the culture thinks about quite a bit. Uh, I was uh, listening to Larry King not that long ago, and he was once asked in an interview if he could interview anyone in history. You guys know Larry King on, on TV, right? If he could interview anyone in history, who would you interview? And Larry King's answer was Matt Jones. Can you believe it? No, it wasn't. I'm just seeing if you're paying attention. His inter- his in- who he could interview was Jesus Christ. He said, I, I would interview Jesus Christ. And he said, well, what, you know, why, like, why, what would you ask him? And here's what he said. Let me put it, let me put this in front of you. He said, and they asked him, what would you like to ask him? And King replied, 
I would like to ask him if indeed he was virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. Indeed, it has defined history. In a, in a day of skepticism, in a day of anti-Christianity, in a day of godlessness and whatever, you, you can deny Christ, you can push him away, but you can't deny the historicity of the Christ. He, he's a real historic. Even King acknowledges he's a real historical figure, but what about this, this virgin thing? I'd really like to know, right? He's, he's defined history, wh whether you like it or not. There was a meme that was going around in 2022, and I saw it perk back up in 2023. Uh, it always pops around, to, or at least the last two years, it popped around December. And, uh, you know, the person in the first figure says, uh, it, it's the year 2022, Christianity is no longer relevant. And then the next person says, 2022 years from what? Right? From the birth of Christ, right? Merry Christmas is the zinger there, right? Like, you can deny Christ as Lord and Savior, but it's hard to deny His historicity. As we get used to, in the new year, writing 2024, every time you write 2024, it's like, okay, 2,024 years from what? And the, the, you know, the political correct police uh, can say, oh, we don't say A.D. anymore. You know, we, we say A.C.E., the common era or whatever. It's like, okay, but what made the common era the common era? I mean, you know, you can change the labels, but, you know, it still is what it is. You know, you, you can call a boy a girl, but that girl's a boy. You know, you can call it whatever you want. You have that liberty, but there's still a reality that's underneath this. What shaped the common era? What does this date come from? That baby in a manger in Bethlehem. So what happens? How does that baby get there? Well, this leads to number four on your outline, the virgin conception and the birth of Jesus, which is what today's message is getting into. Some key terms for us. Terms are important. You need to understand terms so that you have vocabulary, so that you can talk about stuff. If you're you know, watching uh, baseball for the first time, and you're like, what's a curveball? What's an RBI? What's, a, you know, what, what's an inning or whatever? You've got to learn the terms so that you can appreciate the game. If you're like me, you know the terms and you still don't like the game, but whatever, so, you, know, uh, you know, it is what it is. I'm more of a basketball guy. So let's learn some terms here. Incarnation. The word incarnation means in flesh and it denotes the act whereby the eternal Son of God took on to himself an additional nature, humanity. And he did so via or through this virgin conception. The virgin conception. There was a baby that was conceived in the womb. So incarnation. Uh, we think of you know, uh, carne asada, right? Like, mmm, that's so good, right? Chili con carne, carne, flesh, he's enfleshed. And, and more than flesh, he takes on full humanity, right? He, he has a full human soul, full human body. And the result is that Christ remains forever unblemished deity, which he had from what we call eternity past, but he also possesses true sinless humanity in one person forever, now, another term that we must consider is this phrase, only begotten, which is a highly misunderstood phrase. In some English translations, Jesus is referred to as only begotten. A lot of people think about these verses when they speak about the birth of Jesus, and they should because it's, you know, it's in the text. So, for example, one of the most popular verses in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal or rather everlasting life. Many cults will emphasize the phrase begotten as if to say that the Son of God is not God. They'll say, Yo, you, you people with your Trinity and all this stuff, you know, he can't be God because he's begotten. And begotten means created. Uh, so obviously, if the Son is created, he cannot be God because God is by definition uncreated. Now that said, our English word begotten comes from a Greek word, monogenes, which actually does not mean created or made. Begotten in this context, as you have on your outline, doesn't mean made or created. Mana, uh, if we break down the word, it means only, alone, or it means soul. Take the second part of the compound, ganas, it means a race, a people, a class, or a kind. And so the word indicates that the thing uh, that is begotten, this is simply a way in the ancient world of, of saying that something is unique. It's one of a kind, it's special. It does not mean that the Son was created. It actually just speaks to his specialness, his uniqueness. And as a result of this, some translations will say, like if you have a new international version, they will translate this as one and only Son. It's about uniqueness. Uh, that said, begottenness in the ancient world, it also speaks to something uh, that's a bit more than uniqueness. So number four there on your outline, Jesus is the eternal, unique Son of God. He is God and should be distinguished 
uh, from other kinds of sons of God. He's the unique sole son of the Father. It is important to note that if John wanted to say that the son was created uh, or, or made, he could, have said, he could have said that in his language. So you have number five on your outline. Uh, note that John did not use monoktesis, which is the word for created or made. He uses monogenes. Theologically, this word monogenes has developed in the history of the church to speak of the special, unique relationship of the father and the son. What is exactly special about this relationship? Moving down your outline, they have a unique relationship of what we call eternal generation. This is a relationship that is possessed between the father and the son. This is not a relationship that the spirit has with the father. It's one that the son has with the father. Uh, in order to be distinct, you have to have distinct relations. So the son is related to the father by way of eternal generation. The spirit is related to the father by way of eternal spiration. In historical theology, the term begotten emphasizes that the father and the son are equal. When an earthly father begets a son, they are of the same nature. Uh, you know, my son Elijah is of the same nature. If you look at my pictures of, of me when I was around his age, we got, we, you know, we got the same, we kind of got the same look, all right? So, so when fathers beget sons, they are of the same nature, just as the father and the son are eternally of the same nature. Now, this is different than if I created a son. Uh, say, I, I, you know, I started getting into AI and I got like a mannequin or I stole a mannequin from Fox Hills Mall. Yeah, it's forever Fox Hills, not Westfield. I went to Fox Hills Mall. I stole a mannequin. I used some AI or whatever and I created a son, right? That's not of the same nature as me. It would be a robot. It'd be of a different nature. So the son is of the same nature of the father as well because God eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit is of the same nature as the Spirit. But the relationship of the Son to the Father is a relationship of Son and Father eternally. So when the Bible speaks of His begottenness, it has nothing to do with being created and everything to do with the special relationship that He has with the Father. Furthermore, early Christians use this word begotten to speak of eternal generation. As you have on your outline, it's very rich historic doctrine. Uh, Subpoint here, one, this concept was taught in the early church. Early church fathers, theologians, speak of eternal generation to unpack this unique relationship. The language is picked up in the early creeds of the church. You have on your outline here a quote from Nicaea in uh, 325, begotten of the Father before all worlds. In your outline last week, you had an extra insert that had the Chalcedonian Creed and the Athanasian Creed on it. So you can see in the history how ancient Christians spoke about him and about this relationship. And this is stuff that we should preserve. It's not stuff that we should let be lost. Uh, That's one of the problems in our culture. Uh, you, You know, why we have so much confusion in our culture? Because people don't read the Constitution and the Bill of Rights anymore. People don't understand a fundamental philosophy about government, culture, state, church, what are these, what are our roles, because we don't read our founding documents anymore. So too in the church, if we don't read the fathers, if we don't read our our rich history of 2,000 years, we are going to lose much. Uh, Quoting the Chalcedonian Creed from 451, which was given out to you in full last week, and there's extra inserts of it out in the entryway, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, perfect in manhood, truly God, truly man, Begun before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. You can see very clearly they don't think this word means created. In the Athanasian Creed, we read that the Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. So the ancients didn't hear the word begotten and think that meant created. So to the skeptics who want to attack the Bible and say, oh, he can't be God because he's begotten, you go, dude, you do not know what you're talking about. You, you've, been, you've, been, uh, you've been on TikTok too long. You've got to turn off the tube and start reading uh, historical sources. The term begotten describes an eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. Now, uh, continuing our, our discussion on terms, number three on your outline, you have virgin conception versus virgin birth. Uh, there is a saying that, that bad habits die hard. And I think because of the church's lack of reading its own sources, for whatever reason, we've taken on uh, the nomenclature of saying virgin birth, which isn't actually what we're getting at. We're getting at conception. A lot of people talk about birth, but actually Christmas is more specific, and so it's, it's technically more accurate for us to talk about conception. Jesus' birth, as far as the Bible says, was like anybody else's birth. Uh, it, it's just like my birth. 
Actually, I was a C-section. Take that back. Uh, I had a big head. My poor mom, uh, my, my brother too. They, they had to rip us out. It was, you know, anyway, I, let me stop myself here. But uh, his birth is just a normal birth. His life is like a normal life. That's part of it. Like the, the eternal glorious son has a normal birth, a normal life, normal siblings, normal neighborhood. He had normal embryonic development in the womb of Mary. What sets it apart isn't the birth and his development. What sets it apart is the conception. How did you get a baby in there? She's never had sex. How did a baby get in there? That, that's the part that makes it miraculous. It is the virgin conception of the divine son in which the eternal son assumes a human nature without ceasing to be God. The son didn't cease to be what he was God, but he began to be what he was not human. He did not cease to be Theos, but he began to be Theanthropos, the God-man, by adding a nature to his person. One who, the Son, two what's, God and man. This happened at the conception. So bad habits die hard, but let's try to move from talking about birth to conception, if you will. So moving down your outline here, number two, the biblical evidence for the virgin conception. Hopefully your Bibles are still open to the Gospel of Luke because that's the first example that I want to show you. We left off with the prologue of Luke where he says, I'm writing down everything, I'm investigating it. The investigative scientist Luke that he is. Draw your eyes at verse 26, if you will. Here's the historical account. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin. Engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he, he says to her, uh, Greetings, favorite one. Uh, the, the, the Lord is with you. And she, and she was perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of a salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive, right, conception. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son in her old age. She is barren, and now in her sixth month, nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We see in the text here that Mary is explicitly called virgin. Uh, the term in, in the Greek here is parthenos. She's explicitly called parthenos. And this is a fact that she herself confirmed in verse 34. Verse 35 clearly attributes the conception to the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, we see the work of the Father, the Spirit, and the Son all working together in cahoots. Uh, thirdly, verse 35 indicates that Jesus was born free from sin, the holy child. Christ's human nature was cleansed from stain, macula, of Mary's fallen nature by way of the Holy Spirit. I, I, I shared with you at the beginning of the message about the Creator God, and He creates, and humanity rebels, and as a result, their progeny are born into sin. Uh, he is born free from sin by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the miraculous part of it. Christ's human nature is cleansed from the macula of Mary's nature. The fact of Christ's sinlessness is, the, is seen throughout the scriptures. Repeatedly in the text of scripture, we are told that he knew no sin. He knew no sin. There was no sin in Christ, 1 John 3, 5. Uh, e even those who didn't believe in him, like Pilate, which we read in Luke 23, John 19, Matthew 27, Mark 15. Pilate says, I find no basis for charge against this guy. He has done nothing wrong. He's, he's clean. Even the thief on the cross says that in Luke 23, 41. Like, like he's innocent, Right? Christ claims his own sinlessness in John 8, 24. He is said to be without sin or blemish in Hebrews 4. So he's holy. That's a part of the miracle of the conception. He's born free from sin, and he is, uh, and he is given life uh, asexually. That's miraculous. Number four on your outline, the term translated come upon and overshadow are not euphemisms uh, for sex. So it, 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 we, we don't believe that the Holy Spirit, you know, did, did something, you know, they, it, this is asexual reproduction. 
Now, I say that and all sorts of jokes come into my head, but I'm going to stop myself. But I say that there's actually cult groups that believe this, some, some big ones. They, they think that uh, Yahweh actually had sex with Mary and then she gave birth. And you're like, what? <laughs> you know, what peyote are you smoking? That's not in the text. Where would you get that? Uh, this, this, these are not euphemisms. They're figurative expressions for divine intervention by which God supersedes the natural order of things. And so it's miraculous. Move from Luke 1 and find your way over to the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1. I want to take you into the Gospel of Matthew. We have investigated some of the primary sources of Luke chapter 1. And now we're going to investigate a first century source document. Matthew chapter 1. Would you draw your eyes at verse 18? Let's read his account. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. Christ was as follows, right? Verse, verse 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, uh, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So before they came together, that's a euphemism for sex. So they hadn't had sex, and she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when she had considered this, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken of uh, by the Lord through the prophet. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and they shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel Lord commanded him, and he took Mary as his wife, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So we see in the text, historical primary sources, Joseph and Mary were betrothed. Uh, betrothal was a relationship that was regarded as the legal equivalent of marriage. Uh, in our culture, we have engagement, but this is like engagement on, on Red Bull. This is engagement on, you know, a couple cappuccino sprinkles on the Red Bull. This is intense. When you are betrothed, it was, you were, it was legally binding. In other words, betrothal could only be broken by a formal divorce, and this is why Joseph is referred to as her husband, but they're technically, they haven't consummated their marriage because they hadn't had sex. Number two, Joseph and Mary were not knocking boots. Um, now, knocking boots is a euphemism. We saw the text of Holy Scripture using a euphemism for sex coming into together, and so euphemistically, the text is letting us know they, they weren't, you know, they weren't doing stuff, uh, a lot of our euphemisms just aren't clean. I thought knocking boots was like a safe one. But, uh, you know, we have euphemisms for things, and Scripture even uses it. They, they didn't have sex. Verse 25 says, Joseph kept her a virgin until birth. You can respect that. So Mary's pregnancy in the text is attributed to the Holy Spirit. This is very clear in the text of Scripture. You, you see here in verse 20 of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, and to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom, which is in the feminine, by whom, in the feminine, was born Jesus, okay? Uh, he's tied to her. It's, she's the mom. He doesn't have a biological dad. And note the, in, in the text here, there's a repeated active verb. Was the father of, uh, gives way to a divine passive, was born, in verse 16. God is the active agent in the conception and the birth of Jesus. Uh, Joseph is not his biological dad. Joseph is his stepdaddy. Joseph is instructed to take Mary into his house and to name the child, thereby establishing for Joseph legal paternity of the child. Hence, the community came to believe, as we see in accounts later in, in, in Matthew 13, 55, for example, and Luke also has this account where people are like, isn't that Joseph's kid? Uh, not exactly. Joseph is his stepdaddy. Uh, fifthly on your outline, Matthew believes that these events fulfill prophecy, as we just read in the text. Now, all of this took place, verse 22, to fulfill what was spoken of by Isaiah the prophet. 700 years before, Isaiah writes this prophecy about one who would be born of a virgin. Uh, this comes in Isaiah chapter 7. Let me put it in front of you so you can see it. Chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child. She will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Uh, skeptics of the Bible like to attack this verse. Uh, they, they like to go, oh, you know, that's not about Jesus, you Christians, or whatever. Uh, you know, who's, who's the prophet speaking about? Okay, well, let's take a deep dive into the context here. What is the context of Isaiah chapter 7? It's written, as noted, 700 years before Christ. This takes place during what's known as the divided kingdom of Israel, between Israel and Judah. This was an era in which God's people were split between the north and the south. 
The passage was spoken by the prophet to the king of Judah, Ahaz. So you have on your outline these data points. King Ahaz lives in the 700s BC. He was not a good man. Uh, if you think our politicians are, are you know, uh, sleepy, shady, whatever, you know, this guy takes a cake. Uh, when he died, the people were really happy, happy about it. He didn't get a kingly burial, according to 2 Chronicles 28. Uh, no one liked uh, King Ahaz. Now, the passage takes place during a time that is known as, as you have on your outlines here, the Syro-Ephraimite crisis, okay? And, and basically, during the Syro-Ephraimite crisis, you have two kings, King Pekah, king of Israel, and then King Rezin, king of Damascus. This sounds like the missing members of the Wu-Tang clan, Pekah and Rezin, <laughs> dropping bars. Okay, so long story short, Pekah and Rezin, they decided to jack King Ahaz, or Ahaz, because uh, he thought that they thought he was a punk over some political and military stuff. So instead of trusting God by asking the prophet Isaiah for a sign, King Ahaz took it into his own hands, and he formed an alliance with an enemy, Tiglath-Pileser III, which you have on your outline, the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III. That's a mouthful, so people like to call him, uh, he's colloquially referred to as TP3. That's his, that's his rap name, TP3. Uh, TP3 wants to battle Pekka and Resin. So God's not happy about this whole ordeal. You're supposed to trust him, not go to enemies to, to protect you. And it's in that context that Isaiah gave Ahaz this prophecy. And as you look at the passage there in Isaiah chapter 7, uh, he talks about a boy who would be born of a virgin, which you, you see very clearly here in verse 14. Uh, in, the, in the verse following 14, 15, he's said to be raised in a time of national calamity. And in, uh, thirdly, while he was young, the two-king alliance would be broken. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 16, he says, For the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, and the land of the two kings you dread will be forsaken. Uh, so the whole virgin birth thing in the context of Ahaz is a part of something that was happening in that immediate historical moment, but it's also about something that was bigger uh, we see this in prophecy of Scripture, the typology of Scripture, that often they're talking about something in the historical present, but it, it surpasses it and it talks about something that is much future. Uh, would you move in your Bibles from the Gospel of Matthew now over to the Gospel of John? So we've looked at Luke, we looked at Matthew, we're going to look at another primary source, John. And before we read John, let me say some things about Sensius Planor and typology. With types, something could be speaking about one thing and also speaking about another. This is a common um, literary and, and even oral device. Um, I was listening to a song recently where the, uh, the artist in the song is asking for forgiveness from his father. But it's very clear as you listen to the lyrics that the artist isn't talking just about his biological dad. He's also talking about his heavenly father, God. You say, how do you, how do you pick up on this? Well, some of the lyrics apply to an earthly father, but then as you're listening, they go beyond the earthly father. Uh, you might, you might, we use the word pun, where you have one word and you're, you're hitting it twice. Uh, likewise, some stuff in Isaiah fits in, in kind of a pun way about stuff with Ahaz, but then it goes beyond. God gave these prophets messages that uh, spoke forth in their immediate context and then went beyond. They were messianic. So while a baby was born, this baby that was born in Isaiah 7... Uh, was not virgin-born. Uh, the, the term virgin in verse 14 translates from the word alma, which is a word that is used for an unmarried woman of marriable age. Isaiah was just trying to give a timeline in context. Basically, that in nine months plus, the age of this kid begins. He begins to understand right from wrong. That's going to happen. Isaiah was likely speaking about the birth of, of his own son, but that son was not named Emmanuel. We see in Isaiah 8.3. His wife actually already had a child, and so she would not uh, be a virgin. Isaiah said the baby w would be named Emmanuel, meaning God with us. A few chapters later, the child is called Mighty God in Isaiah 9-6. This clearly is beyond Ahaz and Isaiah himself. It's a prophecy of the future. It is important to note that Isaiah spoke this prophecy to the house of David and not just to Ahaz himself. The sign was given not just for the people then, but it was given for something future. Uh, moving on your outline, let's get in, uh, moving from the, the history and what have you in the text, let's move into some of the theological significance of the virgin conception. Uh, it's very significant, it's very deep. A, on your outline, the virgin conception was not the beginning of the Son of God. I ask you to turn to John 1, because John 1 puts the slam dunk on it. Look at John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Who is this word? Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, right? The glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Uh, the word is the only begotten one. The word is the eternal son, the son of God, who has been in existence forever because he's God, one with the Father, one with the Spirit. The virgin birth is just the beginning, or the virgin conception, uh, is just the beginning of the God-man. So moving from A to B, the virgin conception does not entail a reduction or a denial of the deity of Jesus. Uh, this was, there, there was not in the virgin conception a transformation or a compromise of his deity, uh, as to suggest that the second person of the Trinity somehow transmuted into a man or something like this. God the Son did not cease to be God when he became a man. Uh, it's not, I, you know, like werewolf genre, you know, teen wolf. He's not like, what is, is he a wolf? Is he a man? Well, he like goes back and forth or whatever. Uh, gremlins, right? Are they little furry things? What are, what are they? They transform. He, we didn't transmutate or anything. See on your outline, the virgin conception does not entail a reduction or a denial of the humanity of Christ. Don't assume that unless you are uh, born of both a man and woman, you're not truly human. A thousand years ago, in a text called Cur de Homo, We'll probably do this for book club next year for December. Uh, Anselm, the great thinker, reviewed four ways in which God can make a man. Uh, the first is by way of natural generation, a man and a woman. God makes, uh, God makes babies through men and women. Amen? Amen? Okay, you're with me? Number two, he could do so without the agency of either a man or a woman. Like Adam. He made Adam. He, you know, just grabbed some dirt and breathed into it. Boom, there's a man, right? He's a creator. He can do stuff like that. Uh, so he can do it like Adam. He can do it like you and I through a mom and a dad. Thirdly, he can create a man without a woman, like Eve, right? Or fourthly, through the divine empowering of a man and a woman past age, like Abraham and Sarah. Uh, all admit that we, as well as Adam and Eve, are human. Likewise, there is a fifth way, the virgin conception. The Bible provides overwhelming evidence for both the reality of the virgin conception and the full humanity, the complete biological reality of Jesus. D, on your outline, the virgin conception does not teach that Mary has a miraculous delivery. Um, she, you know, she goes through normal childbearing pain. There's not like a miraculous C-section or whatever. Um, incidentally, there are some Roman Catholic theologians who have taught that uh, Jesus had a supernatural delivery. And speaking of Roman Catholics, that brings us to E. The virgin conception does not re require us to affirm the Roman doctrines of Mary. Uh, there are differences that, that we have, uh, Protestants with Catholics. Uh, speaking very recently, I don't, have you guys been watching the news? Should I go there? Should I go there? There's been a really hot button issue in the news lately of differences between Protestants and Catholics. Uh, on the 18th of December, uh, the Pope approved fiducia supplicans which is a doctrinal declaration that Catholic clergy uh, now bless same-sex couples. Uh, not going to get into that. That's too much. All right. Anyway, so moving on. We, suffice it to say we have some differences, okay? Uh, one, we don't believe in the Immaculate Conception of Mary. That was proclaimed in the 1800s by a pope. The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is the idea that Mary herself was conceived without sin. Um, it, it just as much as I want to, you know, bad habits die hard, like, hey, don't say virgin birth, say virgin conception. Uh, I, I sometimes will hear Protestants say immaculate conception. I'm like, no, 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 that's not one of our doctrines. Uh, that's a very late doctrine, incidentally. Uh, th that was the idea that Mary was born free from sin. And, and part of that was like, well, how is Jesus born free from sin? It's like, well, Mary was born free from sin. Uh, but it creates an infinite regress. Because, well, how was Mary born for free, free from sin? Well, then it's also, you know, and then you just undo original sin. Uh, th there is not one word in the New Testament that remotely suggests that Mary was conceived in a way different than any other human being. Furthermore, Mary herself confessed that she was a sinner in need of a Savior. We don't uh, believe in perpetual uh, uh, virginity of Mary, furthermore, uh, as the Council of Trent declared in the 1500s. Uh, we believe after the birth of Jesus, uh, you know, Mary and Joseph, you know, they knocked boots and had kids and stuff like that, okay? Um, we read in Matthew chapter 1, we read in uh, Luke chapter 2 uh, of this, Matthew 1, it's here in front of you. He kept her a virgin until she gave birth, right? Uh, Luke 2, 7, she gave birth to her first son, wrapped in cloths, laid in a manger. There was no uh, room for them in the inn. He's described as her firstborn son here in Luke 2. If she had remained a virgin... Uh, Luke wouldn't describe her as the firstborn son. He would have described him as the only son. He's the firstborn because she had more. 
The Bible tells us that Jesus had half uh, brothers and half sisters. They're mentioned throughout in the New Testament. Uh, Imagine having Jesus as your older brother. That's got to be a tough lot in life, right? Why can't you be more like your brother? He's the anthropos. (laughs) I can't compete with him. Uh, Thirdly, uh, talking about uh, the virgin conception, it doesn't elevate Mary to a place of worship or veneration. Uh, Pope Leo in the 1900s said, As no man goes to the Father but by the Son, so no one goes to Christ except through his mother. And all good Protestants go, What? No, no, no. We go to God directly. We could just go to him, confess our sins. And you know why we can go to him? Because the Son is a man. And so he mediates for us. So we can go directly to him. If the virgin birth is not true, uh, virgin conception is not true, then Mary was sexually promiscuous as a teenager, sort of an ancient Juno story. But instead of uh, putting her baby up for adoption, she managed to start the largest religion in the world and fool everybody so her boyfriend Joe doesn't dump her. Uh, It just doesn't stand up to historical scrutiny. F on your outline, the virgin conception calls for biblical Mariology. We need to understand the role of Mary in the Incarnation. Number one, she was not a mere incubator. Number two, Christ derived his human nature, his body and soul from her. Thirdly, Mary is theotokos in a a certain sense. This is an ancient term that has kind of fallen out of use, but it's an important one. Theotokos was a Greek word that was used in history to describe Mary as the mother of God. In 451, the Chalcedonian Creed calls Mary theotokos, and you might go, mother of God, I don't like the way that sounds. Hang on, hang on. you got to understand things before you jump to conclusions. She, she was called Theotokos to guard against the heresy of Nestorianism, which we surveyed last week. Uh, those who denied the unity of Christ's two natures in one person. And so the creed says, Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, the Theotokos, the mother of God. But it specifies according to his manhood. That's the key phrase, according to his manhood. The Theotokos guards against Nestorianism. Uh, The part about the manhood guards against Mariolatry and heathenism. Mary is the mother of God only in the sense that he received his human nature from her. He gets, you know, God took genetic material from her to to make him. Uh, Jesus had a biological mother. That biological mother, her life was forever changed by that son. Uh, She becomes the first woman in the redemptive uh, storyline Uh, of the Bible, she becomes the most famous woman in the storyline of the Bible. Christ changed her life. She's saved by her own son. She becomes a disciple of her own son. On a biological level as well, you think of the the bond that she had. Those of you who have have carried children, uh, women who've carried children, I've got to qualify that today, uh, women who've carried children, there's a bonding that takes place in that gestation over over those nine months. She carried the eternal son in flesh for nine months. Think of the bonding and the unique relationship that she has. I say this because on one extreme, you know, Protestants might go, and we point out things that maybe the Roman Catholics get wrong in this regard, but we still have to esteem her as an incredible character in the storyline of the Bible. And, and, And think about that relationship that she had as she carried the Christ child in her and the bonding that she had with him in that process of conception to birth. Uh, speaking of carrying him, have a quick biological sidebar here. Have you heard of microchimerism? Microchimerism? This is a phenomenon that typically occurs during pregnancy. During pregnancy, small numbers of fetal cells actually pass from the developing fetus to the mother and vice versa. We think of the genetic level about how the mother passes on genes and DNA down to the child, but the phenomenon of microchimerism shows that actually it's a two-way flow of cells of the DNA between the fetus and the mother. The fetal cells find a way into the mother's body beyond the time of pregnancy. In some cases, as long as decades after the birth of the baby, and those cells that pass from the baby to the mother are are actually found scientifically to help uh, heal scars, help organs, transform into cells that are needed by the mother, including brain cells, heart cells, and various cells of the immune system. All that said, think about that. Like after the birth of Jesus, Mary carried cells from the Son in her body. Is that crazy? Mary was an amazing woman of faith. We celebrate her as Theotokos, according to his manhood. You think of the emotions of carrying a child. She's young, she's poor. Uh, What's going to happen? You know, Joseph wanted to put her away. Like they don't have anything. Think of the shame. 
you know, of, of, of a pregnancy and, and, and then you got, because of the census, you got to go to Bethlehem and all your family's there and all the questions you would get asked and what have you, you know, how far along are you? How long you been betrothed? You know, and, and, and just all the pressure that goes in this and God works through that to bring redemption. Now, of course, uh, the virgin conception is not without its objections. Uh, people will say, um, well, you know, you, you, the, the virgin conception, you can't believe in that because that's a miracle and miracles do not happen. A friend of mine said, you know, Matt, I can't believe that you believe in this stuff. You're educated, you know, like how, how, how can you believe in this stuff? You know, how can you believe in a virgin conception? That's not science. Uh, to, to which I reply, well, how so? Uh, to which he replies, well, virgins don't conceive. Uh, to which I reply, well, actually, that's not scientifically true. There is a phenomenon in biology known as asexual reproduction. You should Google it. One form of asexual reproduction is actually called parthenogenesis. And parthenos is the word that we have inside of the Bible that describes Mary. Parthenos means a virgin. Genos means giving birth. Mary is explicitly called a parthenos. Uh, now, in biology, we have parthenogenesis. It takes place in plants, invertebrates, water fleas, aphids, stick insects, ants, bees, wops. It happens in some vertebrates as well, some reptiles, amphibians, fish, some birds even. They asexually reproduce. So it's not anti-scientific to believe in asexual reproduction. He said, well, it never happens in humans. Uh, and I believe what the scientific method says. That it has to be testable, observable, repeatable. You can see aphids doing it all the time. We've never seen a human do it. Well, uh, the fact that you've never seen anything happen doesn't mean that it hasn't ever happened. I've never seen a black hole. I've never seen a cancer cell. I've never seen a whale give birth, but I believe those things happen. Uh, furthermore, we all believe in things that are not repeatable. I asked my friend, don't you believe in your own birth? You believe you were born, right? That's not testable, repeatable, observable. Friends, the world is filled with things that aren't testable, repeatable, and observable that we have every good reason for believing in. And furthermore, friends, the world is filled with miracles. We just choose to deny them and explain them away based on our presuppositions and the fake news that we get fed. Speaking of fake news, another accusation against the virgin conception, uh, people will say, well, it's only mentioned in two Gospels, so it's not true. Uh, this is sort of a parenting moment, too. Or, well, how many times do I have to say it to make it true? You know, how many times do I say clean your room? You know, how many times do I have to say it? You only have to say it once. Uh, but furthermore, it is said more than twice inside of the scriptures. Uh, people will attack the genealogies. Oh, the genealogies go through Joseph, so, uh, you, know, dun, 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 you know, it doesn't work. You know, no, 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 in that culture, it's, uh, you know, it's a patriarchal culture, so they have to tie them through Joseph. Uh, but furthermore, actually, we see in Luke's genealogy that he ties it through Mary. In Matthew's genealogy, he ties it through Joseph. Uh, it actually works both ways because Mary is a descendant of David, so that's nonsensical. D, they'll say, oh, this virgin birth stuff is copied from pagan religions. Actually, one popped in my feed this week. Some corny rapper is like rapping about, oh, this Christmas stuff is stolen from pagan religions. That's just fake. That's fake news. I did, in fact, I did last year a Christmas series on fake news. So if you want extended uh, work on uh, this, it's just not the case. Uh, the Greeks thought that Hercules came from a sexual union with the god Zeus and a woman Alchemini. That's not virgin birth. Some sects of Hinduism believe that Krishna is a virgin-born avatar or an incarnation of Vishnu, but they also think that Vishnu came from a fish, a turtle, a boar, a lion. Uh, yeah, that's not like the Christmas story. Uh, you know, uh, you, you look at the, the accounts and it doesn't stand to scrutiny. E, the virgin birth is not true, uh, they'll say, because Alma in Isaiah 7, which we've already considered, they'll say that doesn't mean virgin. Now, Alma is an ancient Hebrew word and it means a young woman, Okay. Uh, but in their culture, they weren't like us. Young women were virgins. It's used interchangeably that day. So don't impose anachronistically our, uh, you know, promiscuous culture on, on them. Like, that, that's a term that gets used interchangeably. Like, young woman virgin is used interchangeably. That's so easy to prove. All right, conclusion. We've covered a lot of ground. This has been a mouthful, hasn't it, right? And again, what I started with, I'm so thankful to be in a church like this where I get to do stuff like this, where... I get to just show you deep stuff, quote ancient stuff, take you into the text. You get to see this. You get to think about this. It's Christmas Eve. What not better a day to be thinking about this? Just as God creates in the beginning, he makes the world out of nothing. The act of creation, right? The beginning of the cosmos. The Christ child Christmas is similar to the universe. It's an act where God brings a life and he brings it within this womb. It's absolutely incredible. 
We must understand, uh, by way of conclusion, the historical and the contemporary challenges. I've surveyed some of the objections. We've looked at evidence and apologetics. We need to know, church, not only what we believe, but why we believe it. This is so important. When I was a kid, I'd ask questions like, hey, well, like, why should I believe that? Because I'm going to public school, and they're telling me there's not a creator. They're telling me that there was a goo that turned to the zoo, and then it turned to you, right? And, uh, and it's all random chance, and you know, and whatever, and then, they, and then they're shocked that we act like animals when they tell us that we haphazardly evolved from them, and I come to church, and I go like, well, but, but my science teacher says this, and you know, what about this? And I go, well, you just got to believe it because it's in there, you know? It's like, I, I want to know why I ought to believe it. We need to know why we believe these things. We need to understand the eternal challenges. Um, on your outline, the virgin birth accounts for the hypostatic union of Jesus, if God created Jesus a complete human being, right, in heaven or something, and then shot him down to the earth or whatever, like, like th- that doesn't work in the historical redemptive uh, revelation of Scripture. If the virgin birth is not true, how could the Son of God have taken on humanity? If the virgin birth, I should say conception, old habits die hard, is not true, then how do we maintain Christ's and hypostatic and hypostatic humanity? See last week if you want to know more on that. If the virgin conception is not true, how do we account for the sinlessness of Christ? Um, He would be born in sin, just as you and I, and in which case, how does he die in our place as an innocent sacrifice? Number two, the virgin conception shows the sovereignty of God in salvation. God took on humanity by divine initiative. It was not a human act. It was a God thing. Mary and Joseph didn't ask for this. God was the one who initiated this. He's the one who accomplishes this. And you read the, the storyline with Herod and the slaughter of the innocents and all, all the, hist- the history behind it. God has meticulously designed, as we read in Galatians, in the fullness of time he came. It's all in God's sovereign hand. Thirdly, if the virgin birth is not true, Jesus would not have been a redeemer. He would not have been a redeemer. How is he going to redeem the fallen creation that's rebelled against God? How is he going to redeem us if, he's, if, he's, if he isn't virgin conceived? If you're keeping up with the reading, this month we're reading Athanasius on the Incarnation. Uh, Spare me a quick quote here. For this purpose, the incorporeal, incorruptible, immaterial Word of God entered into our world. He saw the race, the race of men. He saw how unsurpassing the wickedness of men was mounting up against them. He saw their universal liability to death. All this we saw, and pitying our race, moved with compassion for our limitation, unable to endure that death should have mastery, rather than that his creatures should perish in the work of his Father, for us men come to naught, he took to himself a body, a human body, even as our own. Nor did he uh, will merely to become embodied or merely to appear, had that been so, he could have revealed his divine majesty in some other and better way. No, he took our body. And not only so, he took it directly from a spotless, stainless virgin without the agency of a human father, a pure body, untainted by the intercourse with men. He, the mighty one, the artificer of all, himself prepared this body in the virgin as a temple for himself, and he took it to his very own as the instrument through which he was known and in which he dwelt, thus taking a body like our own, because all our bodies were liable to the corruption of death. He surrendered his body to death instead of all and offered it to the Father. This he did out of sheer love for us. The truth doesn't change. What are you saying in the 300s? I'm saying today in 2023. We have a Redeemer who loves us, who has come for us. If the virgin conception is not true, Jesus would not have completely fulfilled prophecy. He couldn't be a Redeemer. He couldn't fulfill prophecy. If, it, if it's not true, the Bible is unreliable, at least large chunks of it. If the virgin uh, uh, conception is, is, isn't the case, you, you see what's at stakes in this. This is very important. And the final point on your outline here, six, the virgin conception inaugurated the sun taking on humanity forever. Forever. Inevitably, when I teach on this uh, doctrine, uh, new people in the church will say, I've never heard this before. I just always thought, like, you know, after Christmas and then, like, when he ascended into heaven, he was like, deuces, humanity. Like, he, he just shed this, the body, you know. He's like, I'm so done with this body, this human stuff. No, no, no. Our Savior is, a, is still a man. He's still Theanthropos. 
He's in heaven in a human body. He will return in a human body. He will raise the dead. He'll raise his mother Mary. He'll raise your, my, my granny Jones who is in Christ. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to bring peace to the earth. We're going to come to the community table in just a moment. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We come to the community table. We have these little cups of juice and these little pieces of bread. What do those symbolize? That symbolizes his body. The symbol is of something real. His, his body, his blood, the eternal son who's immaterial, who doesn't have a body and blood, took on a second nature and became a man. And he did that in love to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. And that sacrifice is available to you. Cry out to Him for forgiveness. Come to Him. Be saved by Him. Be renewed in Him. I invite you to come to the table and celebrate Him. I'm going to pray. I'm going to close the message. I hope you, you know, got your notes and you leave today and go, wow, Christmas Eve. Wow, the eternal Son. A prayer Whoa, this is, this is so deep. Yes, it's so deep. Behold, behold the wondrous God who is and what He has done for us. Let's pray and let's celebrate Him in the communion table. Father, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You for the sending of Your Son. We thank You for the testimony of the ancient creeds and Your church and the great thinkers of the church. Lord, we uh, thank You for the riches of this wondrous historical reality. And Lord, we thank You that this historical reality isn't trapped in time, but it continues. The saga continues. Lord, that you would move this morning and save, that you would reconcile people unto yourself, that the angels in heaven would rejoice over those who repent and come to you, and that for, for those of us who have come to you, that we would, Lord, just fall on our knees today as we close our service in song and as we come to the communion table, just being reminded of, of how you, the eternal Son, condescended to leave the heavens and step into the womb of a poor peasant teenager and to come into a broken and messed up world, to have a, a stepfather, to have a broken family, to live in a broken neighborhood, in a broken political system, and die at the hands of it, innocent. And, and throughout that whole process of being rejected and stamped on, you turn the cheek time after time. You cried out even as they were spitting on you. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Lord Jesus, we are floored by your compassion and your grace and your forgiveness. We confess that we take it for granted. We confess that we even use it as license to sin against you. Lord, may, 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 our, may our sins come to confession here and now. May your grace transform us here and now as we come to the table and sing praises to you. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.